0: We're back in Galatians, turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2. Title of today's message, an apostolic clash. Peter versus Paul. Let's pray first. Father, thank you that you've condescended down to give us your word, Lord, and your revelation. And we wouldn't have known you or or what you expect from us or how to walk if you hadn't have done that. So we're just thankful for that, Lord. And I just ask today that you'll not... Let us take what you had to say to us lightly, Lord. We'll take it seriously and that you'll open our eyes to, to see your word and uh, the significance of it. And I thank you that you'll do that for us now and that you'll be here with us today and in our communion service. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Before I begin reading, we're going to read beginning in verse 11 in chapter 2. I just want to very briefly, because I've done this two times now, give the context, though, leading up to our text that we're going to read today. So like we've said, in chapter 1, Paul defends his apostolic ministry. And he tells us in the first verse, as we've seen, that his ministry, it came from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't something that he dreamed up or some other man gave him. And then he goes on in that chapter to defend his gospel message. And he says it was a divine revelation from the Lord Jesus Himself. It didn't come from men. Paul says it didn't come from me. He says, I wasn't looking for it. It came to me. Everything happened when I was on the road to Damascus. I was minding my own business, killing Christians, putting them in jail. And he said, suddenly a bright light came and the rest was history. Jesus Christ revealed himself, the message that he had and who he was going to go to. And when he got that message and those marching orders, Paul goes on to tell us, he said, well, my first thing when I got that is just to let you know that this was a message that Jesus gave me. I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't check it out with the other apostles to make was okay he said no, i went to arabia and i was there for three years and then after three years i finally went up to jerusalem just to get acquainted with peter i was only there a couple weeks and he wasn't giving me the message then we just kind of became friends knew each other talked about whatever and he said, I also briefly met the lord's brother james and he said then i snuck away to syria and cilicia and he said i wasn't around jerusalem long enough those people there they didn't even know what i look like And then he goes on to say in chapter 2, in the first 10 verses there, that 14 years after his conversion, he went up with Barnabas and he took Titus with him, who was an uncircumcised Greek. And... While they were there, they met with Peter, James, and John. He wanted to make sure that they 're all on the same page that they all have the same gospel message. but he said, as he 's doing that, these false brethren they snuck into the meeting we were having, so they probably heard that Paul had brought this uncircumcised Greek into their midst, was treating him like a brother, so their intention was they 're saying we 're going to get this guy circumcised. They were trying to compel him to be circumcised to be like them and Paul said, I didn't budge an inch on that. I wasn't going to budge an inch on that. Now, we know another time he had Timothy circumcised, but that wasn't dependent on the gospel. That was just not to cause others to stumble. His mother was a Jew. But he wasn't saying that that circumcision, his salvation depended on it. But in this case, they were trying to say, you're not saved. You're not one of God's people unless Titus gets circumcised. And Paul says, I wasn't going to budge an inch on that. But he goes on to say, Peter, James and John, they stood with me. They heard my gospel. He said, they didn't add anything to it. They said, hey, what you're preaching is the same message we're preaching. They said, Titus doesn't have to get circumcised to be one of God's people. He's good the way he is. And he ends it all by saying they gave me the right hand of fellowship. So they said, we're partners in this gospel. We have the same message. God is sending you to the Gentiles and he's sending us, Peter mainly, to the Jews And that's the way it was. So, that's where we come to here, and we'll pick it up here in verse 11 of chapter 2. It says, So, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision." And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And Paul says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ, therefore, a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Now, one phrase that occurs several times in these first two chapters of Galatians that Paul emphasizes in his main thrust is the truth of the gospel. He keeps saying he's having to uphold the truth of the gospel. And why is that such a big deal to Paul? Because once the truth is corrupted, once truth is corrupted, power and freedom are lost. Because here's what we know, that the truth of the word, uncorrupted, the truth of the word is what brings freedom. It really does. Jesus said, we went through this a few months back in John chapter 8. He said in John chapter 8 if you abide in my word if you stay in my word he says then you are my disciples indeed the people that stay in his word stay with his word they are the ones that are truly his disciples and he goes on to say if you do that stick with my word then you shall know the truth and the truth that word shall set you free so what does that mean any deviation The truth does what? It leaves you in bondage. You'll still remain a slave to Satan, chained to sin, chained to sickness, chained to mental oppression, chained to division, chained to anger. I was that way when I was raised in a denominational church. I had chains all over me. I didn't hear the truth of the gospel, that was even perverted. And so I had nothing but chains. I was totally dependent on man, his system, everything that went on. I didn't know the power of God because I wasn't told the truth. So when the truth is corrupted, we have problems. And that is Satan's constant attack. He is constantly attacking truth and righteousness, whether it is in our nation, which is what's happening not that we've been a righteous nation but he's attacking it in any way he can whether it's in a nation whether it is in your family or whether it is in churches like ours he is the master deceiver the grand deluder so if you would just put something there in galatians 2 and it's just a few chapters back if you would turn to second corinthians 11 first 4 verses there in second corinthians 11 And here's what we read. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 1, he says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. Uh, And indeed, you do bear with me, he says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. He says, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He says, but I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. He's worried about the Corinthians just like he's worried about the Galatians because that is the constant problem is a perversion and a twisting of the gospel and that's something we all have got to be on guard about because our flesh will never like hearing a crucified life message never and so there's always going to be that pressure to change it especially when that crucified life message doesn't go with our culture whatsoever and there's a lot of pressure from our culture Lots and lots of pressure to compromise. He talks about another Jesus just because somebody comes and talks about Jesus and people say, Well, we all have the same Jesus. No, we don't. Because you have to fill that in. What does your Jesus do? Is your Jesus the Sermon on the Mount Jesus or does your Jesus explain away the Sermon on the Mount? If I can use this phrase, that's a pretty sophomoric thing to say that we all have the same Jesus we don't. Paul just says it right there. Someone will come and preach another Jesus. It happens all the time. And he talks about another spirit. People are mistaking anointings in the presence of God in their worship a lot of times for, oh, this is the the spirit of God. This has been a few years back. But when to hear this guy speak in this church, I mean, to me, it was just a rock concert. I'm thinking, man, I've been to rock concerts like this. And The majority of the people there take this however you want to. They thought it was the presence and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking, this is a false anointing. There was a presence there; I could sense it. But I'm thinking this is not the spirit of God moving in this midst. And I thought I'm not entering into this. And this lady noticed that I wasn't raising my hands like everybody else and clapping and all that. Man, I'm just like I'm sorry. I'm not critical. Y'all do what you want to do, but I'm not participating in this and sure enough the speaker gets up and he says well if there's somebody around you that you don't think is saved why don't you turn to him and ask him about that and sure enough I knew it was coming I could see it coming (laughs) she turns around gives me this big cheesy smile and are you saved and I'm trying to yes ma'am I'm saved you know (laughs) music is a big thing it's a spiritual thing most of the music I hear that's popular that's on the channels is the spirit motivating that I've got a problem with it I'll just put it that way Because if they could prophesy on their instruments in the Old Testament, that's not words. And people say, oh, it's only the words that matter. No, that's not true. There is a spirit behind the music itself, not just the words. Leave it at that, all right? And he also claims that there is another gospel that can be preached. And there's a gospel that can be preached that doesn't proclaim freedom from sin, but proclaims you're free in sin. So there you have it. And it all comes through the mind. That's what Paul says. You look there. He says, I'm concerned that your minds, deceived by the serpent's craftiness, that your minds will be corrupted. And that's how it works. Spirits work through things that are said and things that you listen to. And when discernment is put on the table and you like most of what some guy says, but he's got enough in there, it can corrupt you. And Paul says, that's what I'm worried about. Because the devil... He is out to, when it gets to be to where, when you hear about God's justice, holiness, and wrath, that bothers you. Something's going on with your mind. That should not be a problem. Because that is one thing. The devil is twisting God's justice with Adam and Eve. He says, like as the serpent beguiled Eve, what did he do? He told her, God didn't mean what he said. He said you would die. That's not going to happen. He lied, didn't he? You can sin, the devil's telling her, you can sin, disobey God, do what you want to do, and you won't die. God's not just. He's not holy. That's what he's implying, right? And he also tries to imply God doesn't love you because he's withholding from you. Because he knows if you eat of that, you'll be like God. He's withholding from you. So what he's saying is God's not just. God doesn't truly love you. And God doesn't care about you. You ever been attacked that way? I have. That's what he does. Paul knows this. And this is what we're seeing here in this Corinthian passage is he knows that the true gospel will produce a sincere devotion to Christ. That's what he says there. Look what it says in verse three he says, "I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted." Uh, the new King James says, "From the simplicity that is in Christ. And really that word simplicity there, that's fine, but it's talking about a sincere single devotion to Christ. When truth is corrupted, it takes you away from that. It corrupts. Here's what happens. And you see it happening. But it affects their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ when truth is corrupted. It really does. And Paul says we should all want to stand before the Lord as what? He says, this is how I want to present you, Corinthians. What does he say there in verse 2? He says, I'm jealous for you with the godly jealousy. He says, I have betrothed you to one husband. And he says, I want to present you as what? what as a chaste virgin a pure virgin that's what that word chaste is now you know he's not talking in sexual terms he's talking in spiritual terms he wants us to be spiritually pure people with a sincere devotion to christ and there's something about truth when it's presented there's something clean about it they're just i don't know how else to say that there's just something clean and holy about it so this Pure virgin, what kind of person is that? Well, Revelation 14, it says there there was the hundred and forty-four thousand standing on Mount Zion. And it says this about them. It says, These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. That's John 10. Jesus says, They'll hear my voice, they will follow me. And another that's trying to lead them on another path, he says they won't follow him. They'll hear my voice. And that's what it says about them. It says, they are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And it says this, in their mouth was found no deceit or guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, it's interesting to me that one of the chief characteristics of these virgins that are going to appear before Him, that are redeemed from among men, being firstfruits unto God, one of the chief characteristics of them is they have no deceit or guile in their mouth. They are people that live and speak what? Truth. They're people that truth is number one thing. And the purpose of the gospel is, like I say, is to produce a bride for the Lamb. That is the purpose of what we're all about. A people of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the bridegroom and we are his bride. That is the purpose. And that we can come before him and be in his kingdom as a chaste, holy virgin to him. A spouse to him. Paul says this, Christ also loved the church in Ephesians 5. He also loved the church and he gave himself for her. Why? That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. It's the same thing it said in Revelation. That's purpose of why he came to die, not just to save us from hell, but to make us a special possession of his. That is something he can be. This is what I want to marry, Right. Who wants to marry a prostitute? Who wants to see their kid? Yeah, dad, I found this prostitute down there. This is who I want to marry. Now, you can, you rather have rather This is a virgin. She's kept herself for me. That man, praise the Lord, son. And that's who Jesus is after. So hey, we all have a bad background, but that's what this water of the word. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that our goal? Is that our goal for why we meet, why we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, why we live? To be holy and without blemish before the Lord Jesus. And for that to happen, I would say this. The water of the word that you hear has to be pure to make you pure, doesn't it? Carl Sykes, I was trying to get the words of that song. He has that song, "Old Sweet Water of the Word. My comfort right from the start. I don't remember all the verses of that, but that is the one thing. It's by that word that a man is born again, that his heart is cleansed, that he's made right with God. It's our security in these end times to make it. Paul is going to fight for that. That's what he's doing. Look what he says here. Go back to 2 Corinthians. He's going to fight for that truth of the gospel. It's essential. So when you look back in verse 5 of chapter 2 of Galatians, He says this, he says, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, not for a minute. Why? That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. I mean, their lives depend on it. Whether they realize it or not, Paul does. And he has the same thing over here in verse 14. He says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said before Peter, and he got on his case. So, what was the problem? Why did he have to rebuke Peter? Paul had made a visit to Jerusalem. Peter, Paul, and James, they all agreed with the gospel that he presented. Now, after that happened, then we have Peter making this visit to Antioch. This is Paul's home church. This is really the base of the Gentile church at that time. And Paul says this He says what in verse 11? He said, When Peter came to Antioch, he said, I withstood him to his face. He said, I had to oppose him to his face. He's saying I had to have a face-to-face confrontation with Peter in public. The Pope. He <laughs> mean with getting into it with the Pope face to face, right? And why? He said I confronted him face to face. He says, because he was to be blamed or stood condemned. Stood condemned before Paul? He didn't have to answer to Paul, but he's saying he stood condemned or he was to be blamed before God Almighty. In other words, what he's doing isn't right. And what had he done? Well, here's what he had done when Peter first came to Antioch. He ate with the Gentile Christians. Now, he would have never done that before his revelation that he had concerning Cornelius. So you remember back in Acts chapter 10 that the sheep came down from heaven and his voice was heard. It was the voice of the Lord saying, arise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke again to him the second time, saying, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. So Peter got from that, that not only the Gentiles, but their food was clean to him. Now, that never was before. He wouldn't have anything to do with them. I mean, really, that happened to happen three times. There's a lot of things that had to take place to convince Peter that it was the right thing for him to do to go visit Cornelius and preach the gospel to him a Gentile this is all brand new because you got to think all they had was the Old Testament they didn't have the revelation we had and the only people that were the people of God were the Jewish people everyone else was outside the covenant they were cut off alienated from God that's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2 they were alienated cut off from the life of God they would perish the only people that didn't perish were the Jews and the ones that became proselytes. Salvation, it says, is of the Jews. John chapter 4 wasn't any other place. So God's grace had come to those people. So this is a revelation that's going out to the Gentiles. And he gets confronted in Acts chapter 11 then. It says, And when Peter came to Jerusalem after all this happened, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. What are you doing, Peter? You know Jews don't do that. The people of God don't do that. And Peter went on and he explained the vision, the sheep coming down, arise, Peter, kill and eat. He explained about Cornelius' salvation, how they received the Holy Spirit just like we did. God came down on them. And what happened? How did they receive the Holy Spirit just like they did? How did they know that? Because they did what? Spoke in tongues. Isn't that something? That's what it says. That's Acts chapter 11. They spoke in tongues. Because of his experience with Cornelius, coming into what we're reading here in Galatians, he knew that the Gentiles and their food were no longer off limits. Peter knew that. And Peter had wholeheartedly agreed with Paul back in Jerusalem. No, they don't need to be circumcised. No, they don't have to keep the law. They agreed with all that back those first 10 verses we read in chapter 2. So here sits Peter He's eating bacon for breakfast and lamb chops for dinner in Antioch. That's what he's doing until he's doing that lamb chops, bacon, pork, whatever you want to say, p- p- barbecue. He's, he's thinking this is great until one day it says a group from James arrives. It doesn't tell us exactly what they say. There's a few things that are unclear. You read these commentaries and I mean, there's opinions about who the men were, who the circumcision party was that Peter was afraid of. I think in some ways it doesn't matter, but, and you couldn't prove any point, a lot of them will make sense. But look what it says in verse 12. Well, we'll start in 11. It says, for when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed for, before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, what we talked about. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision this is the one opinion that I thought to me made the most sense, that the men that came from James were Jewish Christians. When it talks later at the end of verse 12 about those of the circumcision that he feared, they were the unbelieving Jews. And one scenario that was painted this isn't the gospel you don't have to die on this one but that perhaps men from james arrived and told peter of the threat of persecution for him and other jewish christians it was increasing by these zealots there was a zealous movement of these jews saying if you don't keep yourself separated from the gentiles we're going to persecute you that's what paul was encountering everywhere he went and so Peter heard that report. Hey, we hear you and these Jewish Christians that are there are eating with these Gentiles, and this is going to bring persecution to you and to others. And so when Peter hears this report, these men from James came, what's going on down there? It says he separated from the Gentiles for fear, probably for himself, but also for these other Jewish Christians. Fear of what? Fear of persecutions. His actions, what he did, it didn't just stop with him, did it? He affected the other Jewish believers. And Paul can't believe it. He's like, not only did you affect the other Jewish Christians there, but even Barnabas, my buddy. Look what it says in verse 13. He says, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Paul is accusing Peter to his face, his friends, his friend Barnabas and these other Jewish believers. He says, you all are acting not out of conviction, not sincerely. You're not sincerely separating from these Gentiles, but strictly out of fear. You all are a bunch of hypocrites. You're play actors. Because here's the deal. Paul's problem with Peter wasn't that he had changed his theology. Peter's theology was fine. His doctrine was fine. There wasn't a problem That The problem Paul is having with Peter is you know the truth of the gospel, but you are not living it. You're not living it. You don't practice it. And you have no courage, Peter. That's his problem. So here, what we have, the same Peter that denied the Lord out of fear Two little girls got him to deny his Lord is the same one that denied the truth of the gospel because of this circumcision party out of fear. Same thing. In verse 14, it says when Paul sees that this whole group that he's rebuking here says when they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And that word straightforward is the word where we get our word orthopedics. And it means make straight straight bones that's what an orthopedic surgeon will do you got a limb that's out of joint or cattywampus he'll straighten it out for you and peter is saying that you guys aren't walking a straight course on the gospel you're deviating from it and he's on their case and he exposes peter's hypocrisy he says look this is what he's telling him here verse 14 he says i said to peter before them all if you being a jew live in the manner of gentiles and not as the jews why do you compel gentiles to live as jews he's saying look peter most of your life on this earth you've lived like a jew you've observed the sabbath you've observed circumcision and the food laws but when you came to antioch when you came here you ignored all of that stuff because now you know the truth That that is not the way that you're made right with God. And so you ate Gentile food. You sat there with uncircumcised men, accepting them as the people of God. But when this report comes from James, strictly out of fear, Peter, you became a Jew again. And then you're compelling these Gentiles saying, you need to become a Jew too, if you want to be part of the people of God and to continue to fellowship with me. And he is on his case he's saying you were compelling them paul has happened to defend the truth of the gospel it was endangered by jewish men compelling gentiles to come under the law and he's going to defend that tooth and toenail because it's said back that those false brethren came and they were compelling titus to be circumcised and now he doesn't call peter a false brother he called his other ones false brethren he's a believer and Peter your doctrine is all right but you are a hypocrite is what he's accusing him of and your actions are endangering the gospel and Paul's got to set this straight and I think Peter repented obviously or Paul wouldn't be talking about it like that and he obviously later he didn't have a problem with Peter so Peter that had to be a very humbling thing for him The leader of the church in Jerusalem walk with the Lord, one of the three. And here he's being publicly rebuked. And again, because of his fear. We'll go on in these other verses to define what the truth of the gospel is. And basically, you know, in essence, it is you're not going to get right with God by observing the law. All the law did, he goes on to say in the book of Galatians, it was given to bring you as a schoolmaster to Christ, to show you your need for Christ. You not only couldn't keep the moral law, but all the other parts of the law pointed to their fulfillment in Christ, the sacrifices, the temple. And he said that sign of circumcision is now replaced with baptism as the sign of the new covenant. But the time I have left, I want to look I was going to go on through verse 15 on, but I want to just, we'll cover that later, but I want to just look at a few things, a few principles, three principles on what we've looked at so far this morning in this text. And the first thing is that we cannot, as Christians, we cannot let fear of persecution or public opinion affect our stand on the gospel. That is going to become more and more and more a temptation as things move on and that's what Peter did because Peter had think about this he had a clear conviction clear convictions he had a clear revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts 10 and the Holy Spirit clearly moving in that whole situation you think how could he forget that how could he do what he did after all that had happened to him hearing and recognizing truth I think a lot of times we think because I like the word I like to come to hear the word that that's the end of it. And that is not the end of it. Peter had all of that. He heard and recognized the truth. But it was giving in to that fear of public opinion that affected his faith. Twice that happened to him. Fear of public opinion. He knew Jesus was the Christ. He knew all that. But it caused him to back off of his faith because he was afraid of what might happen to him. Physically and public opinion and all of that. And we need to remember that. Proverbs 29 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. With the stand we take on not just healing, but a lot of different issues, there's going to be more and more pressure to back off. And that's the fear of man, and it will bring a snare. And the Lord says, You continue to trust me in the face of opposition, and you will be safe. Because how many times we know the truth, we really believe it in our hearts, but we play the hypocrite and we go along with things sinners do and say because we want them to like us. And in a sense, we deny the gospel that we know. We know the truth, but we don't live it. And we have all been guilty of that, haven't we? Everybody has. Jesus said this, though, in Matthew ten twenty five. He says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, How much more will they call those of his household? We somehow think we're going to get off less than him. They're going to respect us in society. If we take a proper stand, there is no way. They didn't respect him. He's saying they didn't respect me. He said, you're of the devil with what you teach and what you practice. Right? They're accusing him of that. And he said, they call me that. You think we're going to get off any easier? I don't think so. He says, therefore, do not fear them. He says, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And he says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So we need to take courage. We can take courage from the example of Paul. Because he was. He was willing to take a stand against Peter of all people, Peter, that took some guts, and his friend Barnabas. I mean, it's hard a lot of times to speak truth to somebody that's your friend, isn't it? It really is. You don't want to, you know, man, that's my friend. I don't want to offend him. That wasn't easy. But Paul said, didn't he say, remember back in chapter one, he said, if anyone, even an angel from heaven comes and preaches another gospel than the one I've preached, what does he say? He says it twice. He says, let that person be accursed. He meant it, didn't he? So, he wasn't intimidated by Peter at all. Look back, chapter 2, look back in verse 6. Now, he's not saying this disrespectfully of Peter and James and John and their office, but look what he says. He says, but from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, he says, it makes no difference to me. Now, he's not saying that arrogantly, but he says, God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. So when it came down to that, he's defending the gospel of God. He's not defending himself. That's what I'm saying. When he says he stood condemned, he didn't mean he stood condemned before Paul. Like you somehow offended him. This isn't Paul's gospel. That's the whole point of everything, right? His apostolic ministry, his gospel came as a direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's messing with him. And so that's why he's getting on Peter's case. We are, in this generation coming up, we're going to need young people that are willing to stand for truth in the face of opposition. Like the three Hebrew boys. I mean, they're in a strange culture that didn't agree with anything they agreed with and they had to die for truth. Throw us in the furnace, but we are not bowing the knee. And that's the way it's getting to be in this country. Jeremiah, he lived in the midst of a wicked people that had no concern. We're talking about truth, the truth of the gospel. Jeremiah 9, he says this, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people, that I might, here's what he said, that I might leave my people and go from them. He said, I just want out of this situation. And here's what he said. He says, for they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men, and like their bow, they have bent their tongue for lies. And he says, They are not valiant for the truth on the earth. For they proceeded from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. He says, God has placed him in the midst of a people that are adulterers, treacherous, and not valiant for the truth. The love lies. And here, Jeremiah, God told him, he says, I've given you a message and you are going to speak it. And it's going to be a message of warning. It's going to be a message of a call to repentance. And it's going to be a message of judgment. They're not going to want to hear it. And they didn't want to hear it. What they do to that man, threw him in a pit, didn't treat him well at all. But he had to be valiant for the truth. Well, let me ask you. Does that mean that young people were saying you should act like what we see on the news here lately? Young people, mainly women, getting in the face of these gray-haired senators, older men, harassing them, screaming at them. And these people think they're defending truth, I guess. I guess that's what they think they're doing. But that is not what I'm talking about. That's not what God's called us to do. And that's not what you see in the Bible Paul said to the high priest Ananias, he says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, because the high priest had commanded that Paul be struck right in the mouth. And those when they heard him say that, those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And Americans think it is our right to revile the leadership that God has put in place. They think it's the right. It's not God-given right. They may let you do it in this country or whatever. But we need to stand for truth. All of us here, young and old alike, that profess to be Christians. But we need to follow our master's example in doing it. So in 1 Peter 2, he says this, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That is easier said than done. Because if we get in trouble and we get in trouble for our beliefs and drag before whatever court system, however that's going to work out. I think one of the hardest things to do is to patiently endure when you are being unjustly accused or threatened or your words have been twisted and used against you what peter here: think of the great restraint that our lord jesus christ used on the cross because the injustice done to judge kavanaugh it pales in comparison to what he had to go through because jesus was 100 percent innocent of every charge laid against him And he had the power to literally wipe out his accusers in the blink of an eye. And yet, to me, this was the greatest display of God's power you would ever want to see. These people, the high priests, all of them, they're jeering. Even one of the thieves, they're jeering. They're mocking him. And this is the pure, innocent, spotless Son of God dying on their behalf. And he sits there and takes that. He restrained himself. Now, that took divine power. We don't do that very well. But not only did he restrain himself, he prayed for them. All of them. And in doing that, he prayed for us because we would have been right there with him. We would have been. You don't think you would have? You would have been. We may have to stand alone. We may have to be like Paul. Peter might have felt like he was standing alone. I'm not going to do this. I don't want these people after me. He gave in to fear. We may have to stand alone, but we can be encouraged that God will deliver us if we do have to stand alone. So God told Jeremiah, I talked about him. He told him this in chapter one of Jeremiah. He says, do not say I am a youth so your youth don't have an excuse because God didn't give Jeremiah one. He says, do not say I'm a youth. He says, for you shall go to all whom I send you and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, God says, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And that's what he says he'll do for us, didn't he? Getting back to that Matthew 10 quote I had, he goes on to say, you know, don't fear them. They can kill the body, but that's all they can do. But fear him who has power to cast into hell. He goes on to say, this one that has power to cast you into hell, he's got a care and concern for you like he does for the birds and the flowers. He cares for you. Not one hair of your head will perish. God be watching out for us. And Paul had this testimony in 2 Timothy 4. He says, "...at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that the Gentiles might hear." He says, also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, that's a good testimony there. And that's the way we can deal with persecution or if we have to take stands that are unpopular. we got to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? You know, what did it say about Moses? We have to know the Lord Jesus Christ we got to know him. It said Moses was willing to endure the wrath of the king. How was he able to do that? Because it said he could see, he saw him who was invisible. And he said he forsook the pleasures of Egypt because he could see the recompense of the reward that was coming his way. Now, the second principle I want to look at that we can learn from this is that if Peter can fall, Peter didn't just fall once to fear, but twice we can too sort of alluded to that it doesn't matter how long you've been a christian how many victories you've had or how spiritual that you think you've become we all need to heed paul's admonition let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall and james said this he included himself in there james the lord brother he said we all all of us stumble in many ways To know that and to look at our own lives, that should be a humbling thought for us, shouldn't it? Because we are always and constantly dependent on the grace and strength of God. The Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus said in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. And he taught us in the Lord's prayer, which is a prayer model prayer to be prayed daily. Give us this day, our daily bread. He says daily we should pray this lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And we arrogantly just sometimes get up and go out of bed thinking we can tackle whatever's going to come our way. And he said, "Uh "Uh-uh, you need to be praying that every day. Lead me not into temptation. Unnecessary testing, but deliver me from the evil one because he's out there laying traps and snares in a lot of different ways. He's doing that. So I think Peter might have gotten self-confident, and that can happen. This self-confidence of Peter, I think that was kind of a problem that he had, didn't he? His was self-confident in a lot of ways, got him in trouble. But he might have thought he had overcome this fear of man. He'd received the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He delivers this message, that fearless sermon. Right. He doesn't care what's going to happen to him at that point, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he just flat out tells them all, you men, you have killed and slain our Lord, and the anointing's on him, and men and brethren, what should we do? He has these great results. And twice he is brought before the high priest and the elders, not once, but twice, in Acts 4 and also in Acts 5. And he's not afraid. In Acts 5, it says the high priest asked them. They have Peter and all the apostles there. They had arrested him. They said, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our father raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree, Him, God, has exalted to His right hand to be a prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And Peter says, we are His witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. And when they heard this, these elders, they were furious and plotted. To kill them. Now, Peter just spoke the truth in love to these elders. And listen, he was fearless. They're out to kill him, and he knows what's going to happen. He doesn't care. He's doing well at this time. And then we find him a few chapters later in Acts chapter 12. He's arrested by Herod, and the night before, they're going to separate his head from his shoulders. What is Peter doing? Is he up worrying, shaking like a leaf? He's sleeping like a baby. The angel has to come in there and wake him up. No fear at all. Yet here in Antioch, he probably is thinking, man, I'm, I've got this fear of man thing conquered through the power of the Holy Spirit. But here in Antioch, sometime later, he's fallen back to his old ways, fearing what man can do to him. The point I'm trying to make is no matter where we think we're at spiritually. So maybe you've overcome lust all this time in your spiritual life. You think you've got it made and you've got it conquered. You better be careful because David probably thought the same thing. We never get to the place where we don't need to be spiritually vigilant. We cannot live on yesterday's grace. We need a fresh supply each day, don't we? We really do from the Lord. And that comes from prayer. And the third principle, the last principle I want to see from this passage is that our sin affects others. Look back again at verse 13 in chapter 2 of Galatians and it says, And the rest Of the Jews also played the hypocrites with him, with Peter, so that even Barnabas was also carried away with their hypocrisy. So Peter played the hypocrite and sinned. He led the believing Jews into the same sin, and even Barnabas was caught in that tsunami of hypocrisy. So, what we're saying is our sin affects others like strong floodwaters, it just sweeps everything into its current. Whether we realize that is not Those of us that are parents The sins we commit affect our children They're watching They're watching And it's true here in the church as well Because as they say No man is an island Criticism and opposition to what's going on here It doesn't just stop at the door It doesn't stop with who is It affects everybody that is here So even the sins that we think we're doing in private that no one knows about, it affects our entire body. Ask Aiken; That isn't the case. But that's the negative viewpoint of it. But just the opposite is also true. When you sin, when you do something wrong, it affects the body in a negative way. But I think the opposite is true. When someone, for instance, steps out in faith and receives an answer to prayer and shares that testimony it encourages all of us doesn't it it really does or when someone shows the attributes of humbleness kindness forgiveness being tender-hearted and loving doing those things we get testimonies coming along that way and it affects us all for good doesn't it so it really does work both ways But what we need to say is no man is an island. And that happened with Peter in a bad way here. But that's something to take heed. But also we need to look at it if it's in a good way, a good positive attitude. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb. Health to the flesh. So in conclusion, there are times that we are all going to have to stand up for the truth of the gospel. And it won't be easy. And sometimes the opposition may be your own brothers and sisters right here. Paul had to stand up to Peter, didn't he? Sometimes that may be the way it is. It may be your family members or it may be the community you live in. It could be any of those or all of them. Fear is a great weapon of the enemy. It is. And it is very effective. It's a great snare. And that's why Jesus had to tell us, he says, listen, you need to fear the terror of hell more than you fear men. I mean, that's a pretty strong word, isn't it? That's a pretty strong incentive. And people don't want to hear about hell, but he talked about it. He's saying, you don't want to go there. He goes on to say, you deny me before men. I will deny you. Guess what that means? You're not going to make it in. But you confess me before men. He says, I'll confess you before the angels and my Father in heaven. Make the choice is kind of what he's telling us. So God Almighty tells us this in Revelation 21, that he who overcomes, if we will overcome by his grace, we shall inherit all things I will be his God and he shall be my son. He goes on to say, but the fearful, it heads up the list. The fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So we don't want to be those that live in the fear of man more than we live in the fear of the Lord, right? That's what it's saying. So we need to daily seek God's grace and strength to overcome fear and also to overcome sin. And we also need to remember that how we live on a daily basis is affecting others either for good or for evil. What is the answer to this? What's the answer to overcoming fear and taking a stand for the Lord? Look down in verse 20. We'll end with this. He says, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And he says, the life which I now live in the flesh, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. And Paul's saying there, look, my old man, all of its pride, sin, trust in my goodness, all of my old man, all of that I did before I was a Christian, was crucified with Christ. And he's saying, Now my daily life is lived by trust in the Son of God. And he's saying, here is how I'm able, by trusting in the Son of God, to overcome all these great trials that I face. Two facts that he knew. Two facts that he knew enabled him and gave him the motivation. And that was, this one that was crucified for me, he loved me. And he gave himself for me. That true, pure love for the Lord That is powerful when you have that. It really is. And it can overcome that force of fear because fear is a force that comes at you. It really is. So the Song of Solomons, it says this Song of Solomon 8, 7, many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. So when you have a true love for the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart, the flood of fear, which is what the enemy will send our way, it cannot drown that, can it? It'll overcome that. In 1 John 4, 18, we'll close with this verse. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love, complete love, cast out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made complete or perfect in love. And John says, We love him because he first loved us. And when you can know that the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, He loved me, when you know that, then we can love him in return. Because that's where the love comes from. It's shed abroad in our heart. We don't have it in ourselves. We're not supposed to work it up. We can't work it up. How does it say it comes to us? He says in Romans chapter 5 that the love of God, love for God, is shed abroad in our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. Read it in Romans chapter 5. And that's what he wants us to have. And that's Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. He prays that for the Ephesian church that you can know the height, the depth, the width, the length of his love for you. Because that is what will help us overcome. Amen. And that's not this sappy love that we're hearing about now, is it? <laughs> it's the true love of the Lord Jesus Christ. The love that will bring us into a holy life and the ability to trust him and glorify him in all we do. Amen. All right, well, let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word. I ask you, Lord, that you'll draw us all close to you, Father, that we can know you and the Lord Jesus Christ and have a relationship with you that will allow us and enable us to overcome all of our fear and to be willing to stand for you in the end and and that we will be one of those that will endure to the end, that we can stand before you and hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, that we can be... One of those chaste, pure virgins, Lord, that stand before you holy and blameless. That's our prayer, and that's my prayer for our church and myself today, Father. And we thank you that you'll do that for us. You'll complete that work in us that you've begun in Jesus' name. Amen.